Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Seven Republican presidential candidates took to the debate stage last night in California. There was a lot of crosstalk among the candidates, but several joined in criticism of former President Donald Trump. He again skipped the debate, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie lambasted him. I want to look in that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight, not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. Trump instead attended a rally in Michigan last night. It was at a non-union auto parts manufacturing plant. The United Auto Workers' strike against the big three car makers continues. The House Oversight Committee holds its first impeachment inquiry hearing into President Biden this morning. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports members are to hear from witnesses who will focus on the constitutional and legal questions that have been raised about Biden. House Republicans have repeatedly alleged that President Biden improperly used his position as vice president to help his son Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said that the accusations, quote, paint a picture of a culture of corruption. Meanwhile, congressional Democrats have slammed the inquiry as a political stunt, accusing Republicans of wasting countless taxpayer dollars. Republicans and Democrats in both chambers have said that the ongoing investigations so far have failed to turn up sufficient evidence of wrongdoing by the president. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Washington. A judge in Boulder, Colorado, will decide today whether the man accused of killing 10 people at a grocery store in 2021 is mentally competent to stand trial. Colorado Public Radio's Allison Sherry has more. A lot of this is focused on Hunter Biden and his business dealings, and as we know, he's battling his own criminal case. The 24-year-old has been hospitalized with schizophrenia at the state's mental health institute since December 2021. Prosecutors say he has shown great improvements since being forcibly medicated with antipsychotic medication and can assist in his own defense. But the accused shooter's defense attorneys say that while the involuntary medication has helped, he is still not well enough to stand trial. One forensic psychologist who has treated the accused shooter testified he told her that he bought guns for the purpose of carrying out a mass shooting and that he, quote, wanted to commit suicide by cop. Allison Sherry prepared that report. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The Massachusetts Senate will vote today on nearly $1 billion tax relief package. The plan was passed nearly unanimously by the House yesterday. The bill includes tax credits for renters, caregivers, and low-income families. It also simplifies how the state calculates corporate taxes. Tonight, Cambridge City leaders will evaluate how their guaranteed income program is going. For two years, the city has been giving money to some of its lowest-income residents. Michael Tubbs is the founder of the group Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. He says tonight's program will include a documentary film and a panel discussion featuring Cambridge Mayor Symbol Siddiqui. So allow the recipients to share sort of what they've experienced, how it works. It allows the mayor to share sort of her vision, what she's done, and then sort of get the community really galvanized about how do we make this a federal policy or a federal program. 
The Cambridge program began as a small pilot program back in 2021. The city is now looking for ways to make it a permanent one. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants to let federally regulated banks serve marijuana businesses in states where cannabis sales are legal. Warren is part of a Senate committee considering legislation that could open the industry to more financial institutions. Marijuana businesses often struggle to access bank services because the product remains illegal at the federal level. Brigham and Women's is teaming up with McLean Hospitals on a multi-state initiative to accelerate bipolar disorder research. Researchers at sites including the Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins University will compile and share data collected from patients. Lead investigator Eve Lewandowski says the data will be used to hopefully find new treatments for the disease. We can really put our data together, put our practice Um, experiences together and drive uh, the system in a way that hasn't really been able to be done before. About 3 percent of adults around the world live with bipolar disorder. It's been more than 30 years since the only effective treatment for the disease hit the market. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, a performance-driven investment manager navigating challenging financial markets around the globe since 1926. Learn more at LoomisSales.com. And Vermont Tourism, trip ideas and planning tools available at VermontVacation.com. Vermont, a little bit like a dream, very much open. The Red Sox played their last home game of the season last night and lost. They were shut out by the Tampa Bay Rays 5-0. The Sox will be in Baltimore tonight to play the first-place Orioles. Red Sox manager Alex Cora says he'll be back next year. Cora has one year left on his contract. He led the team to the 2018 World Series title, but the Sox have finished in last place the last two years. Mostly sunny and in the mid-60s today. Mostly cloudy with some fog overnight. It'll be in the 50s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a slight chance for rain. It'll be in the 60s. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. This is Morning Edition on WBUR, where we are in our fall fundraiser. As a listener, you are always an important part of what we do here at WBUR. This is when we remind you that you actually make what you hear every morning possible. People who listen, like you, make up the largest share of our funding. This fundraiser, we want to bring on 2,500 new members to our community of listeners who give monthly to support WBUR. 
are. That's because monthly support helps us plan in an increasingly uncertain environment. We're trying to sustain our newsroom even as other news outlets dwindle and collapse. That news you depend on from us every day comes at a huge and constant expense. The solution is you, and we need you to act now. The number is 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and I'm in the studio this morning with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Rupa. You know, I'm thinking about all the coverage right now about the looming potential government shutdown and how much uncertainty that introduces into people's lives. And of course, none of us can avoid some uncertainty, but one of the reasons we are asking you to become a monthly sustainer, and we use that word on purpose, Mm -hmm. is because knowing the contributions that are coming in every month to WBUR reduces uncertainty for us. It Mm -hmm. helps us plan to cover the 2024 election, to stay on the MBTA, to stay with the housing story like our investigations team and reporter Todd Wallach have. That allows us to plan for the big stories you rely on us for. So we're asking you to be one of those 2,500 who says, this is how I will support this station and I'll do it now at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News. When you support public media, you are supporting independent information. Might not always like it, but you'll know that it's delivered in your interest. The facts that citizens need so that we can do our jobs as citizens. Thanks for making WBUR possible. Those of you who contribute, thank you. All of you who listen, thank you. Now we're asking you, if you're not yet a monthly contributor, to take that step. Make this work possible in a whole new way so we can show up for you every morning like we do now with great reliability and great quality. We have a couple of ways we'd like to thank you now, both focused on the chef Yodamata Lenghi. If you know who he is, you know how awesome this is. If you don't, you're about to find out. Rupa, let's start with what your $12 monthly gift gets you with Yodamata Lenghi. A cookbook, a cookbook that showcases his abundant vegetable-forward recipes. They give you delicious dishes, uh, plus special takeaways that you can repurpose time Time and time again and other recipes throughout the week. This is all about mixing and matching. It shows you how to fill your kitchen with adaptable homemade ingredients that will change the way you cook every day. And it's just part of what you can learn when you uh, give now. That is $12 a month, but any contribution, am any, I right? Any right. contribution that's gets you into the $12 a month at 800-909-9287 okay. or WBUR.org. I know we're supposed to get those in as yeah. often as we can. Also, any gift right now enters you in a sweepstakes to go to London for five days and four nights, including you and a friend, four of Autolenghi's seven restaurants. It's the only place in the world you can eat the food. Maybe you've been cooking at home, but you're curious, how does mine compare with how the chef makes it? I know WBUR Deb Becker made this trip and was fascinated to see the differences and try all of the recipes. So, plus, London... Buckingham Palace, (laughs) the sights of the world. Any gift allows you to enter into that sweepstakes, but only through tomorrow. 
Uh, you need to call WB or go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Again, we're trying to bring on 2,500 of you as new monthly subscribers. This is the support that we need to keep WBUR going, and we will be very grateful. Thank you so much. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. The Great Science Carnival returns with hundreds of STEM-themed activities for the whole family this Saturday, Kendall Square, cambridgesciencefestival.org. And AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. What are we learning about the choice facing Republican primary voters? Seven Republican candidates appeared in a debate last night in California. Donald Trump did not. In national polling averages, the former president leads all rivals by a margin of 40 points or more. He also leads all challengers in indictments with four. Trump held his own event in Michigan, and we now bring these events together on Morning Edition. NPR correspondents watched them in case you didn't get to. Daniel Kurtzleben is in California, Don Gagne in Michigan. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, what was the debate like, Danielle? It was chaotic. There was a lot of crosstalk. You had seven candidates on stage, all of them far behind Donald Trump, and all of them really trying to stand out. And... And it just got messy. There are some moments that a lot of listeners who didn't watch the debate will nevertheless hear or see gift or memed all over the internet, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the sharpest uh, exchanges was between former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. She was criticizing him for having joined, for him explaining that he had joined TikTok to appeal to younger voters. TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps that we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. But still, despite all of the sound and fury, there were... It's hard to really say there was a standout candidate who really articulated themselves, who made their case that they should be president. I'm not um, sure how much clarity Republican voters got. Well, I, I, I want to ask about policy, about substance on that, because we're talking about people who want to govern the country for four years. Did you get a sense of any differences among the seven or differences between them and former President Trump about what they would do if elected? Among the seven, not a lot. There was a lot of anti-Biden rhetoric, a lot of pro-immigration enforcement, uh, more enforcement on the southern border, for example. So there was a lot of that. Now, when it comes to between the seven and Trump, there was some taking aim at Trump. There was uh, some criticism of the spending during his administration. Also, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis criticized him for Trump's unclear abortion stance. Trump has said lately that abortion causes Republicans to lose elections, but he won't say quite what policy he supports. Now, DeSantis, meanwhile, has signed a six-week abortion ban in Florida, and that is on very much the tighter end. Okay, well, let's hear what Trump had to say. Don Gagne, what did you witness and listen to in Michigan? Uh, The event was at a small automotive supplier, a factory in Macomb County. That's half hour north of the city or so. Trump did not talk about the debate 
at all. He said he was there with a vision for a revival of American nationalism. He accused President Biden of killing the auto industry. He promised to put tariffs in place to protect that industry. It's notable, Steve, that he came here with a message for UAW members who are on strike. And this was a non-union shop. And over and over, he'd returned to the ongoing transition to electric vehicles, saying Mm. it would be such a failure that it would completely wipe out the industry. This is where he mentioned the strike. To the striking workers, I support you and your goal of fair wages and greater stability. And I truly hope you get a fair deal for yourselves and your families. But if your union leaders will not demand that Crooked Joe repeal his electric vehicle mandate immediately, then it doesn't matter what hourly word you get, it just doesn't make a damn bit of difference because in two to three years, you will not have one job in this state. Um, okay, you mentioned the United Auto Workers who were on strike. He referred to striking workers. Were they listening? Uh, the room was full, maybe 500 people or so, a rough guess. There were UAW members there. Uh, they stood on risers in the front on either side of the stage. Still, they were nowhere near the majority in the room, maybe one in five or so. And Trump did keep circling back to the fact that the UAW leadership has not yet endorsed a candidate for 2024. Give a listen. Your leadership should endorse me, and I will not say a bad thing about them again, and they will have done their job. They will have done a proper job. Okay, so that's what Trump was saying in Michigan. Danielle, did Trump come up on the debate stage that you were watching in California? Not a lot, but the fact that he was missing uh, was the topic of some attacks from a couple of people. One was Florida Governor DeSantis. Here he was. Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you to defend his record. And former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie likewise uh, attacked Trump for this. He specifically said that Trump was afraid to defend his record, afraid to go to the debate and defend his record. And no doubt Christie was trying to goad Trump. Trump, of course, hates being called weak or uh, afraid in any way. So, Don, we've heard from the seven candidates in California. We've heard from former President Trump. Danielle has indicated there were not a lot of policy differences illuminated. So I guess everyone is more or less on Donald Trump's page. And there is a question about who would lead the Republican Party in that direction. Um, How does that contrast with the party of Ronald Reagan, uh, who was nodded to by the location of the debate? Is it the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library? Absolutely. And that Reagan's Air Force One, which is massive, is on display right in the room where the debate took place. But but most of the Reagan references came from the moderators in the questions they asked. Uh, there were certainly nods to Reagan from some of the candidates, but mostly what really becomes clear at an event like this and at candidate speeches around the country is that when it comes to Reagan's signature issues, foreign policy, the promotion of free trade, even even immigration, the GOP of today has moved far from the things that Reagan espoused. NPR's Don Gagne is in Michigan. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben is in California. Really appreciate your insights this morning. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So the other big political story we're following, we're three days away from a possible government shutdown. As of now, we're not seeing any signs of progress. 
So let's dig a little deeper into the claim of the small group of lawmakers who are behind the stalemate, they're usually described as conservatives, that they are holding out for deeper cuts to government spending. But here's the thing. What they can actually negotiate over is discretionary spending, specifically non-defense discretionary spending. And that is a small portion, less than a sixth of the government's $6 trillion budget. So is that really going to bring down government spending in any meaningful way? And if not, what are they really fighting about? We call Mark Goldwine for more on that. He's a top policy official at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. That's a nonprofit that pushes for what it considers more responsible economic policies like reducing the national debt. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. So could you give us a sense of exactly what's included in the spending that Republicans want to eliminate? Sure. So we have a six and a half trillion dollar budget. Of that, about a quarter, 1.6 trillion is appropriated each year. That's what we're debating. And of that, um, less than half is on non-defense discretionary. That's the part that House Republicans are talking about right now. So it's about 11% of the total budget. So if this, these discretionary spending cuts go forward, this is that's what the Republicans say, or at least this particular group says that they want, what exactly would that look like? Well, it depends how how deep the final cuts are. But from a budgetary perspective, it would save meaningful money over time, maybe a trillion dollars plus over 10 years. But we need $8 trillion over 10 years just to stop the debt from rising faster than the economy. So, you know, we often focus on the tangible things that the shutdown affects, and, you know, and, and appropriately so. I mean, people who have to show up to work and don't get paid, people who can't pay their childcare bills, the parks being closed, monuments not open, burials delayed. But is part of the reason that these shutdowns, and there have been, what is it, the fifth or sixth since, you know, over a span of time, is that most people don't really feel it? Uh, At any given time, most people won't feel a shutdown unless you're living here in Washington, D.C., because most of government keeps running. Most of government is Social Security, it's Medicare, it's food stamps. And as long as you're already on those programs, you're going to keep getting those benefits. So the problem then becomes for people who are not yet on those programs or who people have need some change in their life. I mean, so it's it's I mean, it's painful for the people who live it. But if you're not actually affected in this group Life goes on. Is that is that really it? That's right. And this is why the longer shutdowns go, the more disruptive they are. Mm-hmm. Because everybody eventually is going to need to apply for something, whether it's a passport mm-hmm. or whether it's a benefit program. Uh, just maybe not in the next two weeks. But what I'm hearing you saying is that this really affect, it affects this in the long term, but it doesn't really have a long-term effect on a growing budget. And it doesn't have a long-term effect on the growing debt. So is this really about government spending or is this something else is this really more theater to be to be to be blunt yeah well look shutdowns don't save money they waste money because we still we still spend it all later um actual cuts to non-defense discretionary they can help with the budget but at the end of the day we need to do something about social security medicare medicaid and the tax code Hmm. so before we let you go uh from your perspective are there any remaining options to avoid a shutdown uh, so we surveyed 100 um, top budget experts, and they think there's an 87% chance of a shutdown. So the good news is that means there's a 13% chance we're going to make it through it. Uh, it the parties just have to get together quick on some type of temporary kick-the-can continuing resolution. But this still isn't a long-term fix to the things that people say they're really fighting about. 
That's right. The, the, the debate is going to be ongoing about how we're going to spend and what we're going to spend on in the appropriations process. That is Mark Goldwyn. He's a top policy official. He's a senior vice president and a policymaker at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. That's a nonprofit in Washington that pushes for what it calls more responsible economic policies. Mark Goldwyn, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, now through October 8th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. The crisis in journalism has been chronicled many times over. The pandemic and current economic conditions hasten the decline. Most of the focus has been on newspapers, but even WBUR's own future is far from assured. That's why we need more members and member dollars. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the single best thing you can do to keep our journalism going. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm host Rupa Shanoi, back with you as part of our fall fundraiser. And as you heard there from Deepa, this is a really challenging environment for media. And we need your help to keep this work going. Think about what we bring you every day. High-quality news that is factual, in the necessary context, weighed against our journalism ethics. That level of quality is really important to me. I know it's really important to everyone who works here. I think it's a big reason that we do work here, but it takes money to make that happen and to make sure it keeps happening in the future. Our goal this fundraiser is to bring on 2,500 new people who give monthly to make sure that we have that secure future here at WBUR. Who are they, You will be the steady source of support that helps WBUR plan for the future. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston, take it away. So have you ever noticed really notice that every time we do that little part where we tell you who we're funded by, it always starts with we're funded by you. Our our listeners. Right. Every single time. And that's not an accident because A, we are. And B, you make up the single largest share of our funding. We really can't do it without you. And when you choose to become a monthly funder, you allow us to know what we can count on. You let us plan. You know the difference between getting a wonderful, let's say, I don't know, birthday check from your grandmother, right? (laughs) And having a paycheck. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both are great, but the paycheck is the one you plan on. Mm -hmm. That's why we're asking you to become a monthly giver. Any amount that works for you is gold for us. $5 a month, $10 a month, $100 a month, whatever works for you. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Truth, independence, fairness, transparency, respect, excellence, NPR. Donate. Thanks. 
When you become part of the community of listeners who support WBUR, we typically offer you some gifts, and we got some really special ones right now. They center around a chef who, if you're in the culinary world, you already know. His name is Yotam Adelangi, and he's a rising star who writes for The Guardian and The New York Times. When you give, you'll be entered into a sweepstakes to go to London to eat at some of his restaurants and also be in London and see everything there is to do in London. When you give $12 a month, you'll get one of his cookbooks. They're full of recipes that focus on vegetables and help you develop an overall style in the kitchen that'll spruce up your condiments, sauces, toppings, transforming any dish. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and be one of the 2,500 monthly contributors we're trying to bring on this fall fundraiser who help make WBUR happen. So the cookbook at $12 a month is the national best-selling cookbook, Extra Good Things. It's from the same team that brought you Shelf Love. Um, and as Rupa said, maximum flavor recipes. Several of our colleagues here love to cook Ottolenghi recipes. CEO Margaret Lowe, WBUR senior correspondent Deb Becker. We have a little WBUR cookbook. There are a bunch of Ottolenghi recipes in there. Some are hard. Some are also hard, <laughs> but worth it, challenging, delicious, but it makes you curious to go try the recipes. How about five days, four nights in London, four of the seven restaurants, Ottolenghi restaurants, only place in the world you can go to, Ropi, Novi, Ottolenghi, Spitalfields, for example, the only place in the world to go to those restaurants and see how the chef himself prepares these incredible foods. And by the way, Five days and four nights for you and a friend in London with all the magnificence. Any gift gets you that. The number is 1-800-909-9287. The phone, the website is wbur.org. Support us. Support what you care about. Bring it to your community. Become a monthly sustainer. It means the world. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at cysimsfoundation.org. From BetterHelp, Committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Millions of federal workers will have their paychecks delayed if Congress doesn't approve funding to keep the government open beyond the weekend. Lawmakers have until Saturday night to get that done. Social Security checks will continue to go out. The House and Senate are still working on various funding options. Later this morning, the House Oversight Committee holds its first public hearing as part of the Republicans' impeachment inquiry into President Biden. NPR's Claudia Grisales has more. 
a lot of this is focused on Hunter Biden and his business dealings. And as we know, he's battling his own criminal case. But Republicans are going to be looking a lot today at payments that were made to Hunter, as well as IRS tax records backing that up, and two IRS whistleblowers tied to these allegations. But again, we haven't seen backup documents that connect that to President Biden. The White House says there's no evidence the president has done anything wrong. Former President Donald Trump did not take part in last night's Republican presidential primary debate in Simi Valley, California. Instead, Trump was in Michigan, speaking at a non-union auto parts supplier in suburban Detroit amid the ongoing strike by members of the United Auto Workers against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. Dow futures are up nine points this morning. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congressman Seth Moulton is urging his Republican colleagues to compromise to avert a government shutdown. That shutdown would begin Sunday unless a deal is reached. Republican Kevin McCarthy became Speaker of the House earlier this year after agreeing to several concessions within his party that weakened his power. Moulton says far-right Republicans are to blame for the impending shutdown. He's in a bind of his own making. The way out is for him to say, you know what, I'm going to stop listening to these crazy, dangerous extremists in my party, and I'm actually going to govern to the center. I'm going to do things in a bipartisan way, and I'm going to work with Democrats to do things that are important for the whole country. Moulton says he's worried the shutdown could cost tens of thousands of federal workers in Massachusetts their paychecks. Boston's firefighters have a new contract. The city council unanimously approved the new collective bargaining agreement yesterday. It was ratified by union members this month. The contract provides firefighters with a 10 percent pay hike. The city's firefighters had worked without a contract since November 2021. Mass General Hospital is receiving the largest gift for cancer research in its history. The exact amount of the donation was not disclosed. The hospital's cancer center will be, will be named the Krantz Family Center for Cancer Research in honor of donors Jason and Keeley Krantz. Hospital officials say the money will be used to support the advancement of cancer treatment and research at MGH. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. The Red Sox lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 5-0 last night at Fenway. The Sox will begin their last series of the season tonight as they visit the Baltimore Orioles. Mostly clear skies today with highs in the upper 60s. Temperatures fall to the low 50s tonight, and it'll be mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of rain. Highs will be in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. A Michigan judge is set to decide tomorrow whether a high school student 
who killed four classmates is eligible for a sentence of life without parole. He was 15 at the time of the crime. Here's Quinn Kleinfelter of WDET. The facts are clear. On the last day of November 2021, Ethan Crumbly emerged from an Oxford High School bathroom with a handgun and methodically shot to death three classmates, most at point-blank range. He wounded seven other people, including a teacher, but the killing spree was not over. Crumbly entered a bathroom where two other students were hiding. He executed one of them, then gestured with a pistol towards the other, a sophomore named Keegan Gregory. I ran behind his back and out the door. I think when I saw his body, I realized that if I stayed, I was going to die. That's from testimony Gregory gave in court a few weeks ago. It was not a trial for Crumbly. He pleaded guilty to the murders last year. It was a hearing required by the U.S. Supreme Court for any juvenile who could face life without the chance for parole, so a judge can examine mitigating factors, like their age or upbringing. During the hearing, Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald argued in this case, the judge must also consider what punishment fits the cold-blooded nature of the killings. She says Crumbly's journals and recordings reveal the pleasure he took from inflicting pain. He decided in advance that he was not going to kill himself. And he researched response times to make sure that he surrendered before the police arrived. He stayed alive because he wanted to witness the suffering he created. Defense attorneys countered that life without parole should not even be an option in this case. They said the trauma the teen caused reflected years of neglect by his parents, James and Jennifer Crumbly, who even prosecutors allege were so negligent they faced charges of involuntary manslaughter. The couple bought Crumbly the gun used in the crime as a Christmas present and refused to take him home from school the day of the shootings after teachers discovered disturbing, violent drawings he'd made. Defense attorney Paulette Lofton says the Crumblies ignored their son's pleas for mental health counseling, something she argued could make a real difference for troubled teens with young brains that are still developing. And that's because most of them get intervention. That's because good parents recognize when their child is circling the drain. Lofton also played jailhouse video showing Crumbly breaking down with apparent remorse over the killings. But those familiar with juvenile pre-sentencing hearings, like Detroit attorney Sanford Schulman, say Crumbly has not been jailed long enough to have a real record of whether he'd attempt to better himself while behind bars. Schulman says that leaves Judge Kwame Rowe with one of the most difficult decisions a court or society can face. It's about sentencing a child. Is that what we want to do? We want to give no chance for rehabilitation, throw away the key, even in the most egregious cases. But when the wound is fresh, when the event is early in time, it's harder and harder for any of us to give him a pass, give him a chance. It's just much more difficult to do it. Whatever the judge decides about parole, he could still hand Crumbly a life sentence. That ruling will come during a hearing in early December, when survivors of the massacre and families of the victims will tell the court how the shooting has impacted their lives. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. Now to Cuba, which is facing its worst economic crisis in decades. Hundreds of thousands of Cubans have fled. But the people who stay are seeing glimmers of a free market. NPR's Ada Peralta has this report. In Havana, there is no hiding the economic troubles. As you drive across the city, supermarket shelves are anemic. And when you ask anyone, how's life? The answer is complicated. Milagros Rodriguez Perez says, I'm grateful to my country, but I have needs. 
Sitting next to her on a street curb, her friends needle her. They haven't had a piece of meat in months, and she tells them to shut up. Food is stable, she says, like a sick person at a hospital stable. But all jokes aside, life for Rodriguez is tough. Her disability payments from the government are 1,500 pesos a month. These days, she would spend a third of her salary buying six slices of bread at a private market. The only way to survive, she says, is to inventar, which is what Cubans call hustling, making something out of thin air. You'd come and give me your shirt and I'd sell it for 20, 30 pesos, she says. That's how we live. The economic crisis has forced people from engineers to doctors to government paper pushers onto the streets. They're selling bread, eggs, and sweets out of carts. On porches, Cubans are holding garage sales. Suddenly, a free market is out in the open in a communist island. The private sector is the only economic activity in Cuba that has been growing. Pavel Vidal Alejandro used to work for the Cuban Central Bank. Now he's an economist at the Pontifical Javeriana University in Colombia. Cuba has been hit by a perfect storm of bad economic news. First, President Trump enacted more economic sanctions. Then Cuba's benefactor, Venezuela, descended into crisis. Then COVID hit, decimating tourism. And Cuba has done little about it. They've been open the economy to private, small and medium enterprises, but too little, too late. Over the decades, Cuba has opened up, allowing privately owned hotels and restaurants. More recently, they've allowed private companies to hire employees directly, and any Cuban can now set up a store on their porch on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Vidal Alejandro says it's clear the government believes a centrally planned economy is not working. But, he says, there seems to be an ideological disagreement over what to do about it. Vale. Just outside Havana, I meet Ernesto Gonzalez at his home, and I ask him, how's life? <laughs> Dear Lord, my brother, he says, life is hectic. Life, he says, has never been spectacular in Cuba, but back during the Castro era, you ate, you had a little fun. Heartbreak was because of love or baseball. These days, it's math. These days, a pork leg runs you up to 14,000 pesos. He earns 15,000 pesos a month working at a state agency. If he lived off his government salary, his family would starve. So he fixes gas stoves, he points to his front porch. It's a little store. He's selling homemade cleaning products, crackers, drinks, flip-flops. And he does it the whole week, not just on weekends. That's illegal, he says. But I have to do it, he says. I have to do it, or I won't eat. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Havana. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance. Auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity. Because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. 
and the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org. Mostly sunny and breezy today in the upper 60s. It falls to the low 50s tonight and grows mostly cloudy. Some patchy fog overnight, then mostly cloudy in mid-60s tomorrow with a slight chance of rain. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com, authentic, artful, accomplished. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Lisa Mullins. Local news is more relevant than ever before. Whether we're covering climate change or income inequality or health care, these issues affect us right where we live. WBUR's local journalism needs a strong future, but that's far from certain. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. Help get us to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. You're listening to the Fall Fundraiser on WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. We're asking 2,500 of you who don't already give to WBUR to recognize what you get from us every day and step up and give. Any amount helps us, especially when you give on a monthly basis. That lets us know how to plan. And I'm going to tease here that we have some really special gifts to thank you this morning, especially if you're a foodie or if you like to cook. Keep listening to hear that. But also call to give. The number is 1-800-909-9287. I'm going to do that slower. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Here's Tiziana. You know, it's 745 in the morning. You said the number and the web address slowly, but I promise you giving at either of those locations is quick. And you can quickly become one of the new 2,500 monthly sustainers. And we use that word on purpose. A small gift from you sustains us. It makes such a difference. And we would like to tell you a little bit about ways that we can say thank you. And to help do that, um, we're going to be featuring a chef, Yodam Ottolenghi. And WBUR reporter Deb Becker recently had the Ottolenghi experience in London that you could win just for supporting WBUR today. She shared this perspective on what turns people around the world into fans of Ottolenghi's food. I think it's really creative food. And people want to call it Middle Eastern or Israeli or Middle Eastern slash Italian in a way because those are the roots of Ottolenghi. But I think ultimately it's very creative use of different spices and different ways of cooking, especially with vegetables. So I have vegans in my household. And there are only so many times you can do stir-fry, right? But Ottolenghi has really unusual takes on vegetables that are that make them wonderful. They taste wonderful. They're fun to cook, especially vegetables. And it just makes cooking and eating them really fun, and it's great to do. 
I'm just learning about Otto Lange, and I'm getting really excited. He's, as you heard, Israeli-born, British chef, restaurateur, and food writer. He's the co-owner of seven delis and restaurants in London. And when you give right now, you're entered into a sweepstakes to go to London and eat at his restaurants. He's also the author of several best-selling cookbooks, and reviewers have said that those cookbooks radically rewrote the way many people in London cook and eat. Another quote from a review said he has made the world love vegetables. You'll get one of those books as our thanks for your contribution of $12 a month. You'll also be able to try some of his recipes yourself with these cookbooks, recipes like Deb said that focus on vegetables. And those can often be tough to make interesting, but these recipes make them the main attraction. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Listen, ultimately, our thanks to you for being a monthly sustainer or any giver to WBUR is the quality, the constant presence online, uh, on air, at WBUR City Space. That's our commitment to you. But we also love being able to enter you into a sweepstakes for any gift that goes through tomorrow. It's five days, four nights in London. And by the way, London, all the wonderful things that you can do there. $12 a month, if you choose that, gets you the cookbook. The average monthly gift, 16 If you can do 100 a month, if you can do 5 whatever you choose, meaningful to us. And we will thank you every day, whether it's with a gift or the quality news and information you rely on. The number one 800 The website WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. The Biden administration is finalizing new rules that could dramatically limit how much new federal land is leased for oil and gas drilling. It's an issue that touches on a longstanding tension in the West. Who gets to do what on large stretches of public lands? The changes could help areas trying to market access to the great outdoors, but some towns appear caught between new goals and old rules. Here's NPR's Kirk Siegler. I'll catch you guys. It's late afternoon in Farmington, New Mexico, and the sun is casting an orange glow on the sandstone cliffs where new mountain bike trails have been carved into the powdery dirt beneath. I've been riding since I was little, but like for the program, I've been riding since it started. Sixth grader Charlie Garrett and her full suspension bike are gearing up for another class with fast Farmington area single track. These middle school girls are learning trail etiquette and practicing climbing. Demand for the nonprofit program has grown exponentially since it started a few years back. All right, well, we'll climb up. Coach Amy Conley is thrilled to see all the newfound use of public lands that surround her hometown. Yeah, I mean, I've lived here my whole life, and my whole family has worked oil filled, and now it's changing, and, you know, there's not as much oil filled now as there used to be, so it's a lot different. 
the oil and gas fields built Farmington and for decades helped power California. But the boom and bust cycles have driven a big push to diversify. Farmington's a city of 45,000 in rural northwest New Mexico and is promoting its easy access to U.S. public lands. Fast's Chris Conley says the group wants to keep expanding and use more trails on federal land but they keep running into bureaucratic red tape and fees. We're doing everything we can in our power to try and get kids outside, but we're met with opposition sometimes. So, you know, we're just doing what we can and trying to navigate it. A growing frustration these days is that the local Bureau of Land Management field office that controls the land outside Farmington only has about two staffers working on outdoor recreation. And there's only one ranger patrolling a vast territory the size of Connecticut. Ashley Kornblatt says land managers for too long have focused too much on energy development. A hundred years have gone by. Things have changed. She's a bike tour outfitter in Moab, Utah, who started a nonprofit group called Public Lands Solutions. And they're trying to help Western towns promote their recreation access. And they're backing the Biden administration's new onshore oil and gas leasing regulations. These are a sweeping update to a 100-year-old law that dictates how and where the federal government leases public lands for drilling. This is a long overdue update of our oil and gas rules that will make a huge difference on the ground for the future of so many communities. Kornblatt says unrestricted leasing continues even as the government can't afford to clean up and cap scores of abandoned oil wells that sometimes mar campgrounds or trails. The Biden administration's proposal would increase royalty rates and require companies to do things like put up more money before they drill to ensure against things going wrong later. It could help towns like Farmington through an economic transition. People like to blame it on regulation, but the reality is the market is changing for these communities. And if the regulations don't keep up with actual market needs, you create this strange place where the communities are not winning from either recreation or oil and gas. But those who still make their living in oil and gas say there's still a lot of untapped resources in the San Juan Basin around Farmington. George Sharp is a manager with Marion Oil and Gas, one of the first to drill around here. Man, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's just such a slog to get through the BLM already, uh, and all they're doing is making it, uh, making it harder. Marion Oil's headquarters sit on a hill overlooking town in the Animus River, running cappuccino-colored after thunderstorms rolled through. There's a big photo of their first well drilled back in 1960, nicknamed Edna. It's still producing. Now, Sharp thinks the timing of this new leasing rule is ironic. New Mexico is currently second only to Texas, raking in record oil production revenues. Let me read one of these things. This is, this is Reading the proposed from, rule off his computer, he says their stated goal is political. <laughs> and address the climate crisis by reducing fossil fuel production and consumption. As Sharp says he's no climate denier, but these rules go too far. I believe climate change is happening. I believe man's making an impact. I think we need to do something about it. I just think if you're trying to get off oil and gas, if you stop the production before you stop the consumption, that is recipe for disaster. The BLM declined to be interviewed for this story, but this new rule follows a rocky couple of years that may demonstrate how hard it is to fulfill a campaign promise to wean the country off fossil fuels. President Biden initially took office and froze all new leasing for drilling on public land, but lawsuits forced the program to resume. And around Farmington, the proposed rule now is seen as a half-hearted attempt at a compromise. My name is Nate Duckett. I am the mayor of the city of Farmington. 
Mayor Duckett has been trying to boost Farmington's outdoor recreation economy and lure more manufacturers here. But he doesn't like the Biden administration's rule either, pointing out a raft guide salary is no substitute for the traditional jobs in fossil fuels. Oil and gas and coal have been paying for everybody for a very long time. The reason I ended up in Farmington was because my stepfather worked out at Navajo Mine. So this is really a company, too. I mean, it's not necessarily a replacement of. But the mayor also knows the local BLM field office needs a lot more staff and money to help diversify Farmington's economy. At the nearby Glade Recreation Area, you can see all the different pressures on public land that the Biden administration is trying to navigate right now. An off-roader in a Jeep is spinning donuts on a dirt track. Behind him are six giant green oil wells. And then Doug Kennedy's just finished up a 13-mile run. He's guzzling water as an oil field worker drives past. About once a week, I'll have somebody in an oil field truck like this slow down and roll their window down and ask me if I need a drink of water. Kennedy loves the easy access to public land. If he could, he'd run a full marathon to the Colorado state line from here. I wish there was even more access. And better management, he says. The key debate as the Biden administration tries to overhaul the rules over who gets to do what on America's public lands. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Farmington, New Mexico. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, our colleague A. Martinez speaks with the trio who wrote and directed the classic comedy Airplane. They are out with a new book about the film. To hear the story, stream NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker, or listen on the radio. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. WBUR supporters include Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You're back with the Fall Fundraiser on WBUR, and you just heard Daryl C. Murphy right there, host of our podcast, The Common. That is one of many podcasts, uh, many newsletters, stories, Everything you get on air, online, we bring it to you so many ways. You get so much from us for free. All of that can only continue with your support. And when you call 1-800-909-9287, I did it too fast again. I'm going (laughs) to 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org right now to give monthly you will help us toward our goal to bring on 2,500 new monthly contributors. We appreciate all support, but we are especially grateful for monthly support because it helps us know what we have to work with so we can plan for the future. The number again is slowly 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy and Tiziana Deering of Radio Boston is here with me in the studio this morning, and she's going to tell you about some thank you gifts we have that will especially 
have the foodies among you salivating. Yeah, we're having some fun these next couple of days with a pair of thank you gifts uh, uh, focused on rising star and famous chef Yodam Adelangi, who's an eat columnist for the New York Times Magazine, weekly food column for the Guardian's Feast Magazine, 10 cookbooks, seven restaurants in London. If you're a foodie, you know him. If you're not yet, you're going to want to know him. Um, Two opportunities here, a gift of $12, a contribution of $12 a month as a sustainer, as one of these 2,500 new sustainers we're seeking in this fundraiser, gets you uh, one of his latest cooks cookbooks, Extra Good Things. Or we're also offering and we're also offering a sweepstakes over the next couple of days. Any gift, Rupa, allows you to be entered in a sweepstakes for... To go to London to visit and eat at some of Otto Lange's restaurants. And when you give $12 a month, you get one of his best-selling cookbooks. I, you might see me grinning over here because I've been looking at some of these recipes. And I got to tell you, I, my stomach is rumbling and not just because... It's 8 a.m. <laughs> and I have not been able to get to this breakfast. Okay, I'm just going to read some of these recipes right here. They need no explanation. Brussels sprouts with burnt butter and black garlic. Mm. Crispy roast potatoes with rosemary and zatar and salsa verde. Mm. Baked blue cheese cake with pickled boot re- beetroot oh, and honey. Me. So this is $12 a month. Gets yes. you this at one 800 9289 or WBUR.org. And right. any gift. All right. She's trying to get me back on track. I'm going to say one more. <laughs> Sweet corn polenta. Okay. one 800 You get to, to be in the sweepstakes, to go to London, to visit one of his restaurants. You get Four. to... Of his restaurant. Yes. yes. Sorry. That's yes. all right. And um, one of these cookbooks, which, I mean, these recipes are amazing Rupa's looking. excited, folks. I am. Join I'm us. Become a monthly giver. Join Rupa's excitement. <laughs> Get all the quality news and information. The website, WBUR.org. And thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival, presenting Art at Night, an evening of satirical comedy, film screenings, award-winning performance poetry, groundbreaking art installations, and more this Friday. Reserve your tickets now at cambridgesciencefestival.org. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The second Republican presidential debate last night, moderated by Fox Business, had multiple chaotic moments as seven candidates tried to make themselves heard. It's not the fault I, I think of anybody who's involved. Some of us are excuse me. Excuse me. Thank you for speaking while I'm interrupting. Literally. While I'm speaking. Well, you said if I may finish, I may finish NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reports the debate was at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California. Trump, who is leading the field in early states by a wide margin, did not participate in the debate. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did attack him for that, with Christie telling Trump he was, quote, afraid of defending his record. Candidates also attacked Trump for his spending in office, as well as his refusal to state a clear position on abortion in this primary. But the Republicans on stage mostly avoided attacking the former president. Instead, many trained their attacks on President Joe Biden, particularly on the topic of the economy. The next debate will be on November 8th in Miami, Florida. 
Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News, Simi Valley, California. Trump spent the evening attending a rally in Michigan. He spoke to supporters at a non-union auto parts supplier facility. As more people experience the effects of wildfires and extreme weather fueled by climate change, the White House is hosting a climate resilience summit today. NPR's Jeff Brady reports the Biden administration invited officials from 25 states, territories, and tribes. Responding to a climate-related disaster requires cooperation between governments. This summit is designed to encourage that. Ali Zaidi is the White House climate policy advisor and says representatives from Democratic and Republican states are attending. The summit marks really the first time that any administration has hosted a major convening like this focused exclusively on climate resilience. The White House will highlight more than a half billion dollars in assistance to help local governments plan for climate disasters, such as hurricanes and wildfires. Other topics include reducing greenhouse gas emissions from buildings, strengthening the power grid, and overhauling building codes. Jeff Brady, NPR News. Officials in Armenia say that more than 65,000 ethnic Armenians are fleeing the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. Rival Azerbaijan's military took it over last week. NPR's Philip Reeves tells us there's only one road to get out of the enclave. People are continuing this morning to come down that road just as they have been for the last four days in cars, buses, even garbage trucks and tractors. A few days ago, a fuel depot in Nagorno-Karabakh exploded, killing more than 60 people, and that's created a shortage of gas. So some people are just walking. Uh, They're bringing their farm animals, chickens, goats, and so on. Now, this is usually by car, a journey of five or six hours, but the road's been jammed, and uh, so it's taking far longer than that. NPR's Philip Reeves. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Members of Massachusetts's all-Democratic congressional delegation are urging House Republicans to put aside their differences and pass a spending plan. The government will shut down on Sunday if the House GOP fails to reach a deal. Congressman Jay Auchincloss says he's growing increasingly frustrated with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He says McCarthy is trying to appease far-right Republicans who want to cut spending. It's notching up day by day because I'm watching like a slow motion collision that the driver could easily swerve to avoid. Massachusetts is home to about 25,000 federal employees whose pay will be halted if the government shuts down. A $1 billion Massachusetts tax relief bill is one step closer to reality. The plan was passed nearly unanimously by the House yesterday. The Senate is expected to approve it later today. The bill includes tax credits for renters, caregivers, and low-income families. It also reduces the state's short-term capital gains tax rate by 3.5%. Community colleges are seeing a spike in interest thanks to a new state program. Mass Reconnect provides free schooling to adults. Adam Frenier reports on the program's impact on schools in western Massachusetts. Mass Reconnect is open to those 25 and older who haven't earned a college degree. Patrick Tanner is the interim dean of enrollment management at Greenfield Community College. He says more than 100 students are taking advantage of Mass Reconnect, and many more people have inquired about it. Across the Commonwealth, the the program has been widely accepted. Uh, Enrollment is up for a number of reasons, this certainly being one of them. The new program began only a few weeks before the fall semester, so officials at area community colleges are hoping Mass Reconnect will continue to grow in the spring semester. 
State officials anticipate up to 8,000 students will participate in it this academic year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community. With open studios featuring art, music, a Lego display, and an architectural wheel of fortune featuring Boston landmarks. October 13th through 15th, visit fortpointarts.org. The Red Sox lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 5-0 last night at Fenway Park. The loss guarantees the Red Sox will have a losing season for the third time in the last four years. The Sox will be in Baltimore tonight for the first of four games with the Orioles. Mostly sunny and in the mid-60s today, mostly cloudy with some fog overnight. It'll be in the 50s, mostly cloudy tomorrow with a slight chance for rain. It'll be in the 60s. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Capital One with a Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, N.A. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Good morning. This is the Fall Fundraiser on WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy. You're listening because you care about what's going on in the world, and there's a lot. It's tough to keep up with what you need to know, even just about the region or the city. Maybe you want to know about what happened last night in the Republican debate. It sounds like it was pretty entertaining. Locally, there's the upcoming city council elections, efforts to fight the opioid crisis, our strange shelter system, helping homeless families. Bringing you all that news every day is really expensive. But we do it for you every day, and we're very grateful to do that. This is when we come back to you and say we need your help to keep all this going. We want to bring on 2,500 of you to bring, to become new monthly contributors, and we're asking for monthly contributions because that steady, reliable support is what helps us plan and know what we have to work with so we can bring you the news that you depend on every day. We need you to call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and give what you can. It doesn't have to be much. Anything helps us, especially especially if it comes in on a monthly basis. With me in the studio this morning is Radio Boston's Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. You know, I just love hearing Anthony talk about that inseparable link. Listeners do make up the largest single share of our financial support, but also everything we do at WBUR, we do for the people who listen, the people who read, the people who come to our events at WBUR City Space. We're here for you. We're also here because of you. And that's why we're asking you to choose to become one of these 2,500 new monthly givers to say, a new way I will be inseparable with WBUR (laughs) is to make a small monthly gift 
that lets WBUR, lets us plan, know what we can expect so that we can bring you the depth of coverage like uh, Gabriella Emanuel is doing on migrants coming into the state, what it means to provide support, what they've gone through to get here. That's just one example. one 800 909 or WBUR.org. It's all part of the support for the stories that help us deal with the push and pull of wanting to know and not always knowing. Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, the senior editor of Cognoscenti, WBUR's ideas and opinion page. One of my very favorite Cog essays is about the power of admitting our own ignorance. Leah Hager Cohen wrote the piece. She's an author and a college writing instructor. Her essay for us became the basis of a whole book about the courage to say, I don't know. Here's a little bit of her essay. The condition of being human involves an awful lot of not knowing. The more we're able to acknowledge this, the more unabashedly we may inhabit our own skins. Leah writes that our culture often places value on judging and gatekeeping, but the freedom to say, I don't know, honors vulnerability. It chews away the tendency many of us have to pretend to know more than we do because we're fearful of being found out or excluded. It's the kind of self-protection that can make you feel more disconnected and lonely. We don't know everything at WBUR, and we don't purport to, but in our work to seek truth, facts, and understanding, we value the chance to be a trusted member of your community. one 800 9289 or WBUR.org. $12 a month allows us to offer you a cookbook from famed chef Yodam Adelengi. Any gift enters you into a five-day, four-night sweepstakes to London to explore all that London has to offer, including eating to at up to four of Adelengi's famed seven restaurants. Foodies know him. If you don't, you'll want to. And if you win the sweepstakes, you'll get to, Rupa. Uh, a couple words here. Crispy cheese and mustard cauliflower bites. I'm mm. sorry. That is one of the many recipes <laughs> in uh, some of uh, Otto Lange's cookbooks. And you will get one of them when you give $12 a month for a year. And you will also get into the sweepstakes to go to London and eat at four of his restaurants. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 to give. And thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stepping Stone. For more than 30 years, working to build a future where all students have access to a college education. Stepping Stone's evidence-based model supports Boston students from historically marginalized communities starting in fifth grade all the way through college graduation. Learn how you can get involved at steppingstone.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're two days away from a government shutdown. And today, a very large House committee will spend the day on something other than trying to keep it open. The Republican-led committee will hold its first public hearing on an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Here's House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer talking to NPR. We want to uh, educate everyone on what an impeachment inquiry is and how we plan to use that moving forward. Many of the Republicans' allegations are related to Biden's son, Hunter, but so far we haven't seen exactly what those actions have to do with the president who would be the one impeached. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales is covering the story. Claudia, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What are they doing today? 
So we're going to see the House Oversight Committee hold what's normally a traditional hearing, but of course focused on President Biden. The panel has close to 50 members who will be asking questions, so this could be a very long day. Some estimates are seven hours. Now, we're going to see three Republican committee chairs lead the hearing. James Comer, who you just heard there, who leads oversight, as well as the chairman of House Judiciary, that's Jim Jordan, and Jason Smith, who leads the Ways and Means Committee, which focuses on tax issues. They'll split about 10 minutes in opening remarks. And then for the Democrats, the top-ranking member, Jamie Rath, who led the impeachment against former President Trump, his second impeachment, will respond to their claims. Republicans have found endless uh, facts and information to embarrass the president's son, Hunter Biden. Uh, It's been a little harder to connect his actions directly to the president. Could today be any different? We're not expecting it to be. A lot of this focus is focused on Hunter Biden and his business dealings. And as we know, he's battling his own criminal case. But Republicans are going to be looking a lot today at payments that were made to Hunter, as well as IRS tax records backing that up, and two IRS whistleblowers tied to these allegations. But again, we haven't seen backup documents that connect that to President Biden. I do want to note, though, um, when they are confronted by reporters, with their lack of evidence against the president who they would impeach, Republicans often say, no, wait, wait, you're not paying attention. We have tons of evidence. Exactly. Do they? Yeah, so they do respond that way. I did ask Chairman Comer that exactly. And he said that's why today is largely going to be a rehashing of evidence of claims they've made in recent months. He says the media's been getting it wrong, so they're going to be revisiting all of that. Now, Republicans are are claiming that Hunter exploited the Biden name in his business dealings with associates. That's going to be part of that central argument saying that there were ties to foreign associates from China, for example, and that President Biden knew about this before his presidency, and he was tied to these payments. But Republicans have failed to connect those dots, and Democrats will argue that. And they're saying this is a big distraction from dealing with the shutdown threats. I talked to Raskin about this. We've been working on this for seven months and there are no facts or evidence leading to any criminal culpability on the part of Joe Biden. Okay, so I just want to follow up on this. You said that you asked James Comer, one of the co-chairs, what evidence do you have? Any evidence? Where's your evidence? And he said, we're going to work on it. We're going to rehash all the evidence today. So who are today's witnesses and do they have any direct evidence of anything? There will be four witnesses total, three for Republicans and one for Democrats, and these are largely subject matter witnesses. For example, for the Republicans, one of them is a familiar name, George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley. He's appeared on various media outlets, and he's often defended President Trump. And so this is largely the focus today is subject matter experts. He's uh, often on Fox News and has occasionally been kind enough to come over and talk with us on NPR. But just to be clear again, he's not a direct witness of any activity of any kind, right? Right. Claudia, thanks so much. Thank you. That's NPR's Claudia Grisales. People who live along the lower Mississippi River face a water problem. It's bad enough for President Biden to approve an emergency declaration for Louisiana. 
river levels are plummeting after a long drought. So salt water from the Gulf of Mexico is moving into the river and threatening the drinking water. Ricky Boyette is with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which has been given the task of keeping the salt water at bay. And he's here with us to tell us what they're trying to do about it. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. So is there a way to describe how much salt water is making its way into the Mississippi River? Sure. The river bottom in South Louisiana is below sea level and and upwards to 190 feet below sea level. And what that means is the Gulf of Mexico naturally wants to fill in the river. What prevents it is the force, the resistance coming downriver from water from throughout the nation. And right now, there is not enough water to provide that resistance against the salt water, so it is starting to fill in the riverbed. So the Army Corps of Engineers has been working on this since July. As simply as you can, what, what are you doing to protect the drinking water? Whenever we see, and we call it triggers, but whenever we see it reach certain points within the river, we'll create this underwater sill. It's essentially a wall that we build underwater, and it creates a basin, and that the saltwater has to fill in, and it slows things down, if you will. We saw earlier this month that the sill that we built in July overtopped, so now we're going back in. We're going to raise it. Uh, now they're 25 feet high underwater, and what that'll do is it will further delay, and we expect that it'll delay the saltwater progression between 10 and 15 days. 10 and 15 days? That doesn't sound like uh, <laughs> that. That sounds kind of uh, temporary. So is it is it just is the idea to kind of hold things back until it rains? The idea is to hold things back until the other alternative plans for ensuring safe drinking water. We want to buy as much time as we can. We know that only rain will solve the problem. But so we're going to buy enough time so that we can get alternate measures uh, moving to ensure that the people have safe drinking water. Like, like what? What are those? So with the Corps of Engineers, uh, while we're building the seal, we're also um, going to begin barging water. What we can do is we can take fresh water from upriver and move it down into the water treatment facilities. They can then mix this fresh water in to dilute the water that they're getting at the intakes and create uh, water that's safe for processing. You know, I probably should have asked you this at the beginning, but, you know, at what point does salt water make it? the drinking water undrinkable or untreatable. I mean, is this one of those situations which you know it when you when you drink it? You just, nobody wants to drink salt water. Is it like that or is there some sort of metric that you use? So the, the standard is you, you don't want water that has 250 parts per million of chloride to water. And so each facility will be taking daily readings um, and that will help them know what they need to mix in of, of water without salinity to get a, a safe concentration. So forgive me for sort of trying to putting you on the spot here, but do you feel confident that people will have safe drinking water in the next couple of weeks? We do. Um, you know, one of the, the factors with the river is it it's linear. It moves in, in one direction and we can kind of plan according it. More importantly, uh, the state and local parishes, we've when we're working with them uh, since really July, and uh, we have a good team together. Uh, we respond to a lot of emergencies, and everybody is coordinating very closely, and we're doing basically everything we can to uh, ensure the water. Well, good luck with that. That's Ricky Boyette. He's with the Army Corps of Engineers in New Orleans. Mr. Boyette, thanks so much. Thanks for your hard work, and good luck. Thank you.
Starting this year, Florida high schoolers have to take a financial literacy course in order to graduate. The state approved teaching materials by Dave Ramsey, an evangelical radio host who preaches against debt. Here's Kerry Sheridan of our member station WUSF. The Ramsey Solutions Financial Literacy Textbook has online quizzes and videos featuring the radio host on stage. Credit cards are snakes. They're designed to bite you. They're not your friend, and you're not going to win. Ramsey encourages people to live debt-free, use cash instead of credit cards. There are also religious references, says Beverly Ledbetter, a longtime social studies teacher. Chapter 6 in Lesson 1 has Proverbs 23 quoted, and Lesson 6 has Proverbs 27 quoted. She says Ramsey's penchant for quoting the Bible is a concern. She also takes issue with the overall tone. The main idea that runs through this book, there are three points. One, debt is bad. Two, pay cash. And three, if you have debt, you are, quote, dumb. The Florida Board of Education approved this book, Foundations and Personal Finance, after the publisher asked for it. Jessica Wright, a parent of two in Pasco County, has been pushing back. She says the state and her local school board acted too fast. The curriculum, she says, lacks academic rigor. It's missing lessons on math and calculating compound interest. We really have, you know, people that were just kind of jumping ahead and not being super thoughtful about the overall decision. I think that's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, I think we've got some politicians that are pulling the strings behind the scenes. The Florida Department of Education did not respond to a request for comment, nor did Ramsey's publisher. The nonprofit Florida Council on Economic Education supports more financial literacy in schools, but its director, Suzanne Costanza, says Dave Ramsey is controversial. We're not of the same mindset. We believe that not all debt is bad debt, and we believe that when managed properly, credit cards can, you know, enhance your life. Those parents in Pasco County who've objected to the Dave Ramsey materials will get to make their case before school board officials in October. For NPR News, I'm Carrie Sheridan in Tampa. So, Steve, did you hear there's going to be a special full moon rising tonight? No, you're giving me the news. What's going on? I am giving you the news. Tonight's full moon is also a super moon. Hmm. And a super moon is when the moon is as close to the Earth as it can get in its orbit around our planet. Oh, Fun so if fact. it's close, it's like, it's the big moon. Is that what we're saying It's here? the big moon, and it is bright, and it can be up to 30% brighter, and appears much as 14% larger than the faintest moon of the year. But we can't stay up that late. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I guess, I guess not. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. I'm Lisa Mullins. Local news is more relevant than ever before. Whether we're covering climate change or income inequality or health care, these issues affect us right where we live. WBUR's local journalism needs a strong future, but that's far from certain. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. Help get us to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors 
Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. This is WBUR's Fall Fundraiser. You're with me, Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy, and I'm with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. We're here to remind you about everything you get from WBUR every day. All you have to do is turn the knob to 90.9 or go to the WBUR app or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Hope I didn't turn any on right there by saying that. Or maybe read one of our many newsletters. All of that makes it easy to stay up to date on the news every day. And staying up to date helps you stay connected to your neighbors, your city, your state, your county in a time when so many people are struggling to find ways to stay connected. Supporting the news you hear and depend on every morning makes you a responsible and effective member of your community. Our goal this fundraiser is to bring in 2,500 monthly sustainers who recognize that and to give monthly because when people give monthly, it helps us know what we're working with so we can plan to bring you the news you depend on. And we have some special ways to say thank you that we'll be telling you about that will especially make the foodies among you really excited. Please call 1-800-909-9287. I'll do it better. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And here's Tiziana. Take that step. Choose to become one of those 2,500 people who will turn into monthly sustainers during this fundraiser to say this is the next way in my connection to WBUR and my belief in my community that I will support the news. So WBUR d- reporter Deb Becker recently had this experience with Yodam Adelangi, the superstar chef, with his cooking and his restaurants that we are offering you. She was in London. You could win this same experience just by supporting us today. So here she is sharing a little bit of perspective on what turns people all around the world into fans of Ottolenghi's food? I think it's really creative food. And people want to call it Middle Eastern or Israeli or Middle Eastern slash Italian in a way because those are the roots of Ottolenghi. But I think ultimately it's very creative use of different spices and different ways of cooking, especially with vegetables. So I have vegans in my household and there are only so many times you can do stir-fry, right? But Otto Lange has really unusual takes on vegetables that are that make them wonderful. They taste wonderful. They're fun to cook, especially vegetables. And it just makes cooking and eating them really fun, and it's great to do. That's just a little of Deb talking about Otto Lange. It's just a small sample of how excited she gets about this guy and his food. He's an Israeli-born British chef, restaurateur, and food writer. He recently wrote in The Guardian about his recipes for early autumn. He focused on this Persian rice dish with a crisp bottom that I've tried to make several times, but I've never seen the process explained as well as he does it. Here's a quote that gets at this level of detail that he provides. Wrap the lid for the pot with a clean tea towel, This will catch any steam, then cover the pan, making sure it's sealed tightly. I don't know about you, but I need that level of explanation, and I appreciate it. You'll get recipes like that when you give $12 a month to support WBUR. You'll also get entered into a sweepstakes to go to London for five days and four nights. You'll eat at one of his restaurants all four nights, and that will be important sustenance as you explore everything that London has to offer. It's an amazing experience, and you will get a chance at it when you show your 
support for WBUR and recognize that we need your ongoing monthly contribution. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. You know, the sweepstakes is courtesy of CBT Travel, and it gives us great joy to be able to thank you with these kinds of gifts and prizes and presents. But ultimately, our gift, our thanks to you, is the quality news and information, the the fact-based journalism that's free to everyone, to your whole community, that you know you can rely on, that you actually choose to wake up to, go to work to, come home to, read during the day, because you trust us. Your trust, your monthly contribution is the gift to us. The news and information is our gift to you. That's how we're linked, and we're asking you to become a monthly sustainer of that relationship. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NATO's Secretary General is on an unannounced visit to Kyiv to show support to Ukraine as it continues its counteroffensive against Russian forces. The stronger Ukraine becomes, the closer we come to ending Russia's aggression. Jens Stoltenberg denounced Russia for carrying out airstrikes near Ukraine's border with Romania, a NATO country, calling those attacks reckless. Former President Donald Trump did not take part in last night's Republican presidential primary debate in California. Seven GOP candidates faced off at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley. Politico senior columnist Jonathan Martin says Trump's absence overshadowed the political back and forth. What happened on the stage is secondary to the fact that the leading candidate wasn't there. And as long as he doesn't have to be there, and as long as he is running away with this race, then these debates are going to be seen as second-tier affairs. And I think that's how last night should be viewed. Trump was in Michigan last night, speaking in suburban Detroit, a day after President Biden went there to show support to striking members of the United Auto Workers. This is day 14 of their walkout against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. With House Republicans still unable to bridge their differences on the budget, the federal government is moving closer to a shutdown. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports that members of Massachusetts's all-Democratic congressional delegation are urging the GOP to make a deal and avert a crisis. 
Congressman Seth Moulton of Salem, who represents the state's 6th congressional district, says Democrats are ready to pass a spending plan. But he says Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy needs to stop catering to a small group of hard-right members of his caucus. Moulton says a government shutdown helps nobody and means essential government workers, from those serving in the military to air traffic controllers, don't get paid. And millions of low-income kids won't get the help they need. I want to make sure that that people aren't going to starve because 100,000 kids in Massachusetts are depending on food assistance from the federal government. Without a last-minute deal among Republicans, which seems increasingly unlikely, the federal government will shut down on Sunday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is looking for a firm to oversee project management for building a new Long Island bridge. The original bridge was demolished in 2014 because of structural issues. Advocates want it rebuilt so it can connect Boston to new addiction and mental health services on the island. The city plans to choose a firm to oversee the project by the end of this year. Wu says that will ensure work can start as soon as the city secures final approval. UMass Memorial Health and Milford Regional Medical Center are exploring a merger. The two healthcare companies have signed a non-binding letter of intent to begin the process. Officials at Milford say financial challenges make it difficult to operate independently. The news comes after UMass Memorial closed its Lemonster Birthing Center last weekend. It's 8:35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Fall Experience. Featuring four dynamic ballets on stage October 5th to the 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Red Sox were shut out in their final game at Fenway Park this season. They lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 5-0 last night. The Sox will visit the Baltimore Orioles tonight. Mostly clear skies today with highs in the upper 60s. Temperatures fall to the low 50s tonight and it'll be mostly cloudy. There's also a chance for a little fog. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of rain. Highs will be in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 53 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Helping nonprofit organizations, including religious organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steven Skeep. An exodus continues from a self-proclaimed republic in Azerbaijan. That's because government troops recently seized control of the breakaway area of the country, which is by the Caspian Sea. More than 68,000 people, roughly half the population, have fled. They are ethnic Armenians and they are fleeing a place they consider their homeland. Some are moving toward the nearby country of Armenia. NPR's Philip Reeves has covered this story for decades. It stretches back into the past century, in fact. Philip, welcome. Thank you. What are you hearing? Well, people are continuing this morning to come down that road just as they have been for the last four days in cars, buses, even garbage trucks and tractors. 
A few days ago, a fuel depot in Nagorno-Karabakh exploded, killing more than 60 people. And that's created a shortage of gas. So some people are just walking. Uh, they're bringing their farm animals, chickens, goats and so on. Now, this is usually by car, a journey of five or six hours. But the road's been jammed. And uh, so it's taking far longer than that. And these people, Steve, are leaving their lives behind. Uh, they've abandoned their villages in the mountains, uh, their homes, their towns. And, and, and there's really no problem. They see no problem prospect of returning. Uh, when you say going down that road, we had a description of it on the program uh, on NPR's Morning Edition just yesterday. It was described as a single road going westward to Armenia, it goes through the mountains. Uh, this has got to be an arduous journey, especially for those who, as you said, are on foot. Yes, indeed. It is tough. And they've been blockaded by Azerbaijan in, for months before now. And, and so many of them have had to live on what they could grow in their own homes and gardens and so on. And so, you know, they're not in great condition for that reason also. Now, Azerbaijan sent troops to retake control of this breakaway area. People are in fear of the Azerbaijani troops, apparently. Um, is there evidence that they need to be? Is the government in any way assuring people's safety? Are they endangering people's safety? Steve, Nagorno-Karabakh's been the focus of conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan off and on since shortly before the fall of the Soviet Union. They fought several wars. There've been atrocities on both sides. And so um, Armenians are worried about their safety. They're traumatized. When the Azerbaijan military seized control the other day, it was very quick, but we were hearing, we were hearing there was bombing, there was fighting, people got hurt. And I think that, yeah, there are assurances from Azerbaijan that their, their rights will be respected, but, you know, they don't trust those. Azerbaijan says it wants to reintegrate them into their society, but the ethnic Armenians don't speak their language. They're Christians, whereas Azerbaijan is a Muslim-majority country. And one of the big concerns among ethnic Armenians is, is that uh, their ancient Christian and cultural her heritage will now be lost to them. And they're worried about reprisals, Steve. You know, Azerbaijan's detained one of their most prominent people. He's been accused, according to reports I'm seeing, of illegal residence in Azerbaijan, because officially it's part of Nagorno-Karabakh is part of Azerbaijan, and that's another reason for concern among the residents that remain. I guess another factor here, Philip, is that we're talking about Armenia and Azerbaijan, two former Soviet republics. And we heard yesterday that Russia still has military bases in the area, even though they gave up formal control decades ago. What role, if any, is Russia playing here? Well, uh, Russia is one of Armenia's closest allies, uh, and um, they took on the role of peacekeeping after a war uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, now there's a lot of anger among Armenians that they have failed to protect them. And that's coming out in various ways, not least against the Russian press who are in the area, uh, who are running into a lot of hostility. Uh, Armenians actually openly accuse Putin of not doing anything to help, uh, uh, but the Russians have responded by you know, but it's clear the Russians aren't happy by the way recently Armenia has been tilting towards the West. So this is a relationship that's going wrong. NPR's Philip Reeves, thanks so much. You're welcome. The people who run and use community health centers across the country are among those anxiously watching Congress this week. The clinics rely on federal funding that will expire on Saturday if lawmakers can't reach a compromise and the government shuts down. Sarah Bowden with WESA in Pittsburgh explains how the standoff could disrupt health care for millions of low-income Americans. 
Northview Heights is an isolated neighborhood on the edge of Pittsburgh. The majority black community doesn't have a grocery store or a library or even a post office, but it does have a doctor's office. Um, so we gave him all of his four-year vaccines, which should mean that he's good to go. Dr. Dallas Malsey is a pediatrician at Northside Christian Health Center. It's known as a federally qualified health center, and there are nearly 1,400 across the country. They deliver care on a sliding scale and are mandated to serve everyone, regardless of a patient's ability to pay or immigration status. I want you to take a big deep breath, okay? While Malsey listens to the boy's lungs, Leslie Hawthorne works across the hall. She spent all afternoon trying to find help for a patient who's recently become homeless and is living in a broken RV. This is a really complex case because she also has high-risk medical diagnoses, and that's the kind of patient we see a lot of. Community health centers like Northside Christian are located in low-income and rural communities. Without federal grants, many would not survive. In the modern era, a federal government shutdown hasn't lasted longer than 34 days. So they hope their funding will be restored, eventually. But not knowing is disruptive and leads to missed care. During previous funding crises, these clinics made tough choices. Melinda K. Abrams is with the Commonwealth Fund. Community health centers institute hiring freezes. They reduce staff hours or layoff staff or they reduce the hours of operation. And right now, it's a bad time for clinics. High inflation means they're paying more for medical supplies and having trouble with staff turnover. And then there's Medicaid. It's these clinics' biggest source of revenue. But when COVID policies changed, millions of people suddenly lost their Medicaid coverage. Now community health centers are scrambling to get patients re-enrolled. Back at Northside Christian, I chat with Lene Hayward after her son's checkup. She tells me before coming to this clinic, she had to take two buses to get to the pediatrician. Don't take it away. <laughs> we need it. It's very convenient for everybody. Don't take it away. Northside Christian says if their finances get any worse, they may have to cut their hours or could stop offering dental services and mental health care. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Bowden in Pittsburgh. This story comes from NPR's partnership with WESA and KFF Health News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community, inviting you to tour the iconic artist studios at Open Studios October 13th through 15th. For more information about this free event, visit fortpointarts.org. Mostly sunny and breezy today in the upper 60s. It falls to the low 50s tonight and grows mostly cloudy. Some patchy fog overnight, then mostly cloudy and mid-60s tomorrow with a slight chance of rain. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. And Arts Thursdays at Harvard and Harvard Art Museums. With a night of art, music, and more, tonight at 5. HarvardArtMuseums.org. 
I'm Deepa Fernandez. The crisis in journalism has been chronicled many times over. The pandemic and current economic conditions hasten the decline. Most of the focus has been on newspapers, but even WBUR's own future is far from assured. That's why we need more members and member dollars. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the single best thing you can do to keep our journalism going. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you. You're listening to the Fall Fundraiser on WBUR. Our goal is for 2,500 listeners to join other sustainers as monthly contributors. Be one of them. And here's why. Our model is dependent on your support. You are our biggest share of funding. And as we look ahead, we know we will depend even more on financial support from our listeners. Be our partner in independent journalism and take pride in delivering this service to your community. There's a lot to be proud of. We hold powerful people to account. We shine a light where there is none. We provide a platform to people who don't have one. So be one of the 2,500 new monthly contributors we need. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and I am so lucky this morning to be joined by Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. The luck is mutual, my dear. I'm really <laughs> glad to be here. You know, you're, we're asking you to be one of the 2,500 people who steps up and becomes a monthly sustainer, a gift, a monthly amount that is meaningful to you because it will be meaningful to us to help sustain us. And we talk a lot with you about the quality news and information that you rely on us for. And that's why we're asking you to do it so we can continue to plan to bring that to you. But there's also the storytelling that we bring you. And here Mm -hmm. and now, co-host Robin Young talked with us a little bit about what is at the heart of the reporting and this storytelling that you rely on WBUR for. Well, I think we've seen in the past few years why public radio matters so much. I mean, call us kind of nerdy, but we have a dedication to fact-checking, to the truth, to hearing all voices, to making sure that we amplify voices that aren't getting heard with a lot of the bombast that's coming at us. There are things that you hear on public radio with the way the broadcast landscape has changed that you just don't hear in many other places. So I I think people have come to really feel the value of public radio. We know you agree with Robin. You know the value of public radio. This is independent, factual journalism provided to your community for free at a time when the truth is a really big deal. You don't get it from everyone. But WBUR brings it to you every day for free at the turn of a knob or of just a touch of a button. And when you support that right now and show that you want to contribute on a monthly basis, you will be entered into a sweepstakes to go to London for five nights, five days in four nights and eat at the restaurants of Yodamadalengi. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. He's an Israeli-born British chef, restaurateur, and food writer. If you don't know him like me, you will know him soon because he is a rising star in the culinary scene. He's the co-owner of seven delis and restaurants in London. Only place in the world you can eat his food cooked by his team. And you will be able to eat at four of his restaurants as you explore London. You will also, when you give $12 a month, you will get one of his cookbooks. These cookbooks focus on vegetables and making them the centerpieces when they are often, you know, maybe not appreciated as much as they can be. As Deb Becker says, there are only so many ways you can cook stir fry, but he (laughs) comes up with more. Deb Becker, we're mentioning her because she is a super fan. 
Uh, so please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You know, Robin talks about, you know, everything we bring. I'm thinking about Todd Wallach tells Desdian works on this investigation about vacant state public housing units. But he brings you the story of the Worcester woman who's facing homelessness while she has cancer. Gabriella Emanuel goes to the Logan Airport in the middle of the night to meet migrants who are sleeping there overnight. It's the extra step. That's why you turn to us. That's why we're asking you to sustain us by becoming one of the 2,500 people who will become monthly supporters with a small, meaningful monthly gift. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding with three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass. Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. California could become the first state to ban discrimination on the basis of caste. Caste is a system of power and privilege based on hierarchy. It's often associated with India and other South Asian cultures. But this conversation around caste has exposed deep divisions in the South Asian American community. NPR's Sandia Dirks has this report. Outside a gleaming government building in Sacramento, a group of about 100-plus protesters have been handing out samosas and chai and singing. They're asking California Governor Gavin Newsom to sign a bill now sitting on his desk, a bill that would make caste discrimination illegal. You might have heard about caste in Hinduism, how Brahmins, the priestly caste, are born on top of a pyramid of privilege. At the bottom are people who used to be called untouchables. They've now renamed themselves Dalits. But it's not just Hinduism. Caste permeates South Asian religions and cultures. One example, many Dalits converted to Buddhism to escape the caste system. It's not an easy system to escape says Dalit activist Tenmori Sandrarajan. Her parents immigrated here to try and get away, but she says caste and casteism followed. We are here to speak for those who have lost their jobs because of caste discrimination. And we are here to speak for those who have faced physical and verbal assault because of caste discrimination. Which is why she says it's so important to explicitly legally ban it. You have the cards, right? Sandararajan is leading this group of protesters, many carrying big bouquets of flowers into the building through metal detectors. They fill up elevator after elevator. Press the ninth floor, guys, again. We're on a mission. On a mission to the governor's office with offerings. We actually have a bunch of flowers and thank you cards to give to your office. A long line, mostly South Asian aunties, uncles, some kids and younger folks make their way in single file to the security gate, delivering bouquet after bouquet of carnations and roses. The flowers, along with over 700 handwritten thank you notes, represent people in cities across California, says Sandrarajan. On the elevator ride back down, she says she believes the governor will stand up for social justice. This is a bill about freedom. 
and there's nothing that signifies our commitment to freedom in the state as those flowers and that act of love and sharing them with us. Going down. Sandra Rajan, along with some others, has been hunger striking for the past 24 days until the bill is signed, she says. But there are others, especially some Hindu-American groups that say caste and casteism isn't the problem it's been made out to be. It's absolutely overhyped, and it's a manufactured narrative of caste in U.S. Pushpita Prasad is with the Coalition of Hindus of North America. She and some other Hindu-Americans have also been protesting in Sacramento. They say the bill will target people like them, Hindus and Indians, who are most associated with caste. This is the open attack on we Indians. This bill is a weapon to butcher the cultural existence of very people this bill claims to represent. That's Ritesh Tandon and Sandeep Derge. And here's Gita Sagand using strong language to demand the governor veto the bill. If he doesn't, she says, You will go in history as the Hitler for all of us. You will begin the cultural genocide of Hindus. This idea and fear that addressing caste discrimination in America is thinly veiled Hindu phobia is growing. Amruta Rajakanda says growing up both in India and in the U.S., she never experienced caste. She only learned of it in American textbooks. When they showed me that pyramid and told me that's my culture, I'm sorry, but growing up in my country, I've never seen that. She's terrified the bill puts the target on her back. Anyone can tell me that I'm an oppressor and I won't have any control. Literally anything you do could be made a crime just because you do it and because your last name so-and-so or you're from some part of the country. Like, how can I have control over something that I'm, I'm born into? But that's exactly what many caste-oppressed people say they face because they were born into a lower caste. The UN Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism, Ashvani KP, says caste, like race, has pushed some groups to the margins for centuries. You are countering an age-old system where a certain section of the society has had the privilege of maintaining the system. Banning discrimination won't target Hindus and South Asians, she says it will protect them, alongside others from communities who have also faced discrimination because of their caste. In Sacramento, I'm Sandhya Dirks, NPR News. WBUR supporters include Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house October 1st, buacademy.org. This is the Fall Fundraiser on WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. We're reminding you about what you get from WBUR. Consistent, factual, high-quality work in context and brought to you by people with high journalism ethics. We're coming to you, we're coming now, we're coming back to you to remind you that this costs a lot of money and we need your support to keep our future strong. We depend on you for our largest share of support. So be part of what we do by contributing whatever feels right for you. This fundraiser, we're trying to bring on 2,500 new monthly subscribers. And again, it doesn't have to be much. A small monthly gift will have big and meaningful impact. It means we will continue to bring you the important journalism you rely on to be there every morning. So help us make progress toward this goal this morning. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and give what you can. We're asking you to become one of these monthly sustainers, one of 2,500 people who will say, yep, 
I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a small gift every month that is meaningful to me and will be meaningful to you, WBUR, because I read your newsletter. I listen to you on air. I go to, I use the WBUR app. I go to City Space events. And our relationship is meaningful. The things that I get from BUR mean something to me. And I want to make sure WBUR is available to my whole community. Sometimes we get really lucky and we get to thank you um, with more than our journalism. And that's the case here. We have a couple of ways to thank you this morning, and they surround uh, a wonderful, uh, famous chef named Yoramata Lengi, who, if you're a foodie, you already know who he is. If you don't, you're about to get to. And our WBUR senior correspondent, Deb Becker, is going to tell you a little more after she had an Autolengi experience in London that you're going to get a chance to enter as a sweepstakes. Here she is sharing an example of one of the meals that she got to try. Maybe you'll get to try it, too. He had uh, celery root shawarma. So he made shawarma, which is like a Middle Eastern roll-up, if you will, with no meat, with celery root. And it was fantastic. It's things like that that he does with vegetables that really, really make you think about, how can I cook this differently? What's the best way to cook this? Should I grill it? Should I char it? You know, he's he's really got a whole new way of cooking and doing things. It's, it's just terrific. When you give right now, you're entered into a sweepstakes to go to London for five days and four nights and eat at four of Ottolenghi's restaurants. Ottolenghi is also the author of several best-selling cookbooks. When you give $12 a month right now, you will get recipes, uh, uh, one of those cookbooks, with recipes like Brussels sprouts with burnt butter and black garlic, crispy roast potatoes with rosemary and zatar, baked blue cheese cake with pickled beetle root, and my favorite right now, sweet corn polenta. I say right now because it keeps changing. These written recipes are written like poetry <laughs> with a level of detail that gives you insight into culture and puts vegetables in the spotlight somewhere they aren't often are but you know coming from a community where we go hard on vegetables it's it's really nice to see you know a spotlight put Ruba on vegetables. is so excited about these recipes folks i gotta I tell you she's been reading them to me all morning they actually look like something i can do so call 1-800-909-9287 or go to wbur.org and give what you can show your support show that you value what you get from wbur every single day you know, there's such a joy in getting to thank you with these kinds of things, getting to enter you in a sweet sweepstakes. And by the way, London, right? <laughs> you know, I, uh, see all of the incredible sights, spend five days and four nights, you and someone you care about deeply on a grand adventure. Um, at the end of the day, we thank you every day when we show up to work with this, with the news and information that we provide you, with the storytelling, with the dedication to facts. We believe in democracy, and we believe that the free flow of quality information is core to that democracy. It's our commitment there that is the fundamental thanks we try to give you. We are asking you to make a little change in how you show up for us by giving monthly, by making some commitment, $5, $10, a month if that's right for you, $50, $100, a month if that's right for you, to show us what it means to you and help keep us going, help keep democracy going. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We will be grateful for whatever you can give, whatever you can give will make a big impact for us. It doesn't matter the amount. If you give monthly, it will help us plan for the future. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And thank you so much.
WBUR supporters include William James College. Open house October 4th for careers in school psychology, leadership, and mental health. Scholarships available, williamjames.edu. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.